Want to know more about what your favorite ninjas have on their minds? Check out the American Ninja Warrior podcast. It's available wherever you get your podcasts, and it's a great listen for any Ninja Warrior fan. Welcome to the Managing Madrid podcast. It is Wednesday, July 3rd. You're in for a really fun episode with Matt Wiltsy and I where we go into a bunch of uh, Real Madrid stuff, talk about some transfers, talk about the depth chart heading into next season, what Real Madrid are doing and what they could have done differently or should have done differently, what the team might look like next season, particularly in midfield, which is uh, has been a really fascinating uh, subject that we've we've been discussing. And I wrote an article about it today on managingmadrid.com, which you should check out about kind of the dwindling depth chart in central midfield, which was so abundant uh, a few months ago. Uh, and then we get into some chatter about Real Madrid's game against Valencia in the Super Cup of 2008, which takes us in a huge deep dive about the team that year, that era, uh, the players, the what-ifs, and that was a really fun conversation. So stick around f- until the end of the podcast for for that segment. Um, if you're wondering what the heck is happening with the Churusi Tacticas podcast and where it is this week, be patient. We had some like really ridiculous technical difficulties in our recording, so that'll be fixed. It'll be up sometime today or tomorrow. Um, and uh, as always, that's a that's a fun podcast with Diego and I. Huge announcement. Um, if you missed it, this is for you. And if you didn't miss it, this is a reminder for you. We are doing a live podcast in New York City on July 28th. Venue to be announced, but we've narrowed it down to a couple places and we'll keep you informed. It uh, is going to be at 7 p.m., so get tickets. Our Eventbrite page is up. It's on the Patreon page. It's on managingmidget.com. We've tweeted it. We posted it on Facebook. I'll put it in the show notes so you can directly click on it. Uh, don't miss it. It's It really is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, we've never done a podcast in person other than that San Francisco one, but Gabe wasn't there. So Gabe will be there. Gabe and I will be on stage, and it'll be a nice, intimate setting. We can We can take questions and... It's going to be a ton of fun. Gabe and I will likely be at the Atletico game in New Jersey too, so we'll do a post-game podcast from there. Um, it's going to be a ton of fun. So get your tickets and uh, and make sure to come out if you're anywhere close to the New York area. Um, before we get underway, I wanted to give a quick shout-out to our patrons who have supported us so much, and there's so many of you now, but one of your awards if you pledge $10 or more. In, adi- in addition to getting bonus content and getting... Uh, responses to your questions you also get a specific shout out on the podcast so shout out to these amazing patrons who pledge ten dollars or more mikhail nilsson frederick sundros john fernandez said mahad nick de stefani adam dorsey solomon ortiz uh, frederick grantekiro leon stavernakis christian gonzalez bjorn salvador essa hariri sergio monleon elian zacco Yahya Ibrahim, Willie Reed, Nick Ribeiro, Eric Rogers, Saad Omar, Sheikh Atiri, Ola Wapamimo, Ola Dunjoy, Patrick Odayafadi, Christian Doff, Dan Berthi, Armin Gashi, Tarek Sphere, Kunal Tilakar, Marin Myrtle, Raghav Potluri, Vicky Cohen, Gary Kohut, Sujai Wani, Peña Maridista, San Francisco Bay Area, Brandon Stevens, Casper Moscala, Catherine Fagundo, Vinod Baratula, Zoran Bosancic, Sway Ayala, Crystal Glass, Rafael Servia, Yihin Liang, Karen Scherer, Soman Shu Singh, Brendan Powers, Rovi Tagiev, Amy L, Shabal Sharapov, Fabian Moreno, Varun, Bernard Kufour, Magnus Lex, Jason Fitz, Anton Hackberg. Thank you so much, guys. And without further ado, this is the Managing Madrid Podcast with myself, Kian Sabani, and Matt Wilsey. Let's go. 
nice article in the Managing Madrid uh, blog. They're wonderful lads that do a great job there. And worth reading about that man there. Kareem Benzema needs to rest and the numbers reveal why. Welcome to the Managing Madrid podcast. This is your host, Kian Sobani. It is uh, Wednesday afternoon. Matt, Wiltsy, and I are here. Matt is the one who chose this week's uh, the, the match for our historical segment where we look back at old Real Madrid games. A really fun one he chose, and I'm glad he chose it. We're going to talk about Real Madrid versus Valencia in the Supercopa of 2008. We'll do that later on in the show. But first, we're going to answer some patron questions, talk about... Um, kind of some surrounding Real Madrid news, some transfer stuff, and obviously to help me break this down is is Matt Wiltsy. Matt, how you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well. Yeah, uh, we got a lot to cover today, so uh, let's let's get to it. I was uh, there's always this period in like after the season ends where I'm kind of relieved it's all over, and then it goes in to this frantic transfer phase. Last season, it wasn't transfers. It was the Zidane-Ronaldo departures, which really took us like deep into to kind of just working around the clock and, and making sure things get out in a timely fashion. And it, they, were, they were big days for us on the site, um, but also as fans. And then this year was like those four transfers in the span of a week. And by the time, like, I think was the last one was Mendy, I think, because I, I can't remember if Rodrigo was after Mendy, which presentation came first or last. By the time the last one finished, I'm like, man, I could just really use a break. And then I had like a few days break, and then I just felt I was like itching again. I was like, man, I can't wait till the season starts. Like it's really, I started to really look forward to those preseason games, even though it's just preseason. Um, I'm really looking forward to it now. I don't know how you feel, but I'm just, I'm just excited to, to just watch Real Madrid games again. I'm excited to go to the games, but I'm also excited to just see where everyone's at. You know, we have reportedly, we kind of know like who's going to be in the preseason team already. Um, but also just always, I like the preseason rush, Matt, because we get to see a bunch of players in the team. Last year, you know, Odegaard was was part of the team and it was fun to see him up close in a Real Madrid shirt. I don't think he's going to be in the squad this year. I think he might just go with his new team on loan. Uh, wherever that may be, but I'm I'm just looking forward to preseason now. Yeah, pre with preseason, hope always springs eternal. You're always uh, you always kind of have a good feeling right at the start of, start of the season, which is which is nice. It's nice to have that. Um, and I think I when I was younger, I used to like always just want the next season to start right away. Always really anxious for preseason to get started. Now I kind of appreciate the breaks a little bit more um, and, and enjoy it and like. I like kind of little, it almost makes you, like you said, you want it more now. So if you get that little reprieve, it, it makes it a little bit better than once the games start coming up again. And I'm like you, I'm ready now. I think I'm getting that itch. I'm excited to see the guys go back to training and then the games start up soon. This um, this is the first time in a few years we don't have a Super Cup to look forward to. No Spanish Super Cup, no European Super Cup. And those are always fun because I remember, you know, 
obviously 16, 17, the one after that was where we blitzed Barca over two legs and then it was kind of downhill from there, but that was really fun. Uh, and then the year after, uh, I believe it was the last season where we beat Manchester United, right? Yeah. Um, and that was fun because it was like we had, Real Madrid didn't look too great in the preseason and Manchester United fans were really in like like full form yeah. of just being really irritating because they had a great preseason. They thought they were the better team all of a sudden. <laughs> and then we just wiped the floor with them in that Super Cup. And that was, so that was fun. So the Super Cup always brings a fun element. It sucks that we don't get to do it this year. A byproduct of not being good this past season and not winning anything. Um, we can, Matt, if you want, just quickly gloss over some things before we jump into some patron questions. Um, Casemiro and Militao in the Copa America final now, beating Argentina. And what was really a fun game, I would I saw someone, I think it was Ohm actually, said it was a bad game, but a fun game. I'd agree with it. Uh, it was a fun, entertaining game to watch with like a lot yeah. of drama um, and, uh, and some interesting tactical wrinkles kind of just folded in there. Um, Spain under 21, obviously winning the, the championship, beating Germany in the final. Um, a really fun article by uh, a new managing manager writer, uh, Anshuman, who kind of looked at Taifusa Kubo's um, performances in the Copa America and, and did a little bit of a tactical analysis of him. That's It's a, it's a really good read. Uh, go on managingmanager.com and read it if you haven't already. Um, I'm still waiting on a feature from Matt. I feel like it's been, when was the last time you wrote something for the site? For me, well, you um, always put up content, but I know, like, yeah. So the last, the last feature I wrote was on the multi-year loan and how I think um, that's probably going to be a tactic used by the club to, with all these young talents, I think we're going to see that used a lot more often now. Is like the two-year loan spell um, rather than just the singular loan spell, which I I've been a fan of. Like you and I have talked about that in uh, in previous podcasts about the benefits of a two-year span. The club getting the loanee gets more incentive to play that player, um, knowing that they have him for two years rather than just developing for a year before they send him back to his to his home club. Um, I wrote an article today, Matt, which is on the site. It uh, it hit kind of hit me hard that you know a few months ago I had written an article analyzing Real Madrid's depth chart in central midfield, and that they pretty much prepared for a post Modric era as about as well as they could have. They stockpiled that position really deep. And then I, I went through, and I, today when I wrote about it, I realized kind of something that was telling to me. That depth chart is like almost almost gutted now because yeah. Ceballos is pretty much out the door. James is out the door. Uh, Kovacic is officially gone. That leaves Isco and Fede Valverde uh, in those kind of midfield options behind Modric and Kroos, plus an imminent signing um, which I think at this point it, it might be Ericsson, but um, you know, we'll see. Um, it kind of just hit me like you know they actually just really didn't believe in any of these guys that they had, which was kind of surprising to me. Um, and the other thing that was really surprising to me that is was that I think the most prototypical player to replace what Modric did, and I wrote about how great he was at his peak in terms of just covering multiple holes and masking tactical problems. I think the one guy that stood out for me that I was surprised that no one else really seemed to want was uh, Ndombele, 
who went to Tottenham at a really reasonable price. Anyway, so I just, you know, it was one of those things that, I, you know, how things, how quickly things can change. And all of a sudden, you stockpile all these talents, and one day you realize that, you know, they kind of looked at it and said, these guys just aren't on the level we want them to be. And that's why, I mean, we always say it on the pod, there's no <laughs> there's no point in trying to project the team in five years' time or even yeah. one year's time or two years' time because even we signed all these guys to potentially, repl- like Teo, to replace Marcelo, Ceballos to potentially replace Modric, Llorente, all, all these guys, and it doesn't always work out like that. And now we, we pretty much we're gutting the depth chart at that position and uh, we'll see who we bring in, but I think usually I think with Madrid, if a player like Modric is going to go, we almost always sign a big name player to replace him rather than um, kind of bring gradually bring these. I think it's hard to think of examples of where it actually works out like that. Maybe Marcelo to Roberto Carlos is the only one that I'm, I'm thinking off the top of my head where like. We brought in a replacement early before Roberto Carlos had retired, and then he graduated. Well, that even, it took years to yeah. get Marcelo to even As any saw level. In the game today that we're going to talk about. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, I, that's that's going to be a really interesting topic, and I actually can't wait to talk about that. Um, you know, like, there was always that question, and I spoke to various journalists about this. You know, some people felt that there was going to be a huge revolution in the team. And it would be a completely different era. And others felt like, you know, actually, it's probably going to be one or two tweaks. I think the answer is clear now that it is a revolution. And it has to be by default because these there's still so many players in the roster. And to get it down, to trim it down to that 23-man roster that you need, uh, you still have a long way to go. Um, Someone pointed out my math was completely wrong because like last podcast or one of the, like the previous podcasts, I said there were 38 players in the roster, 37 when Llorente was sold. And I mentioned, and I said that like 17 people had to be sold and someone was like, I don't think that's the right math. It's not. But there's still a lot of people that have to be sold. Um, and by default, that it is kind of revolution because there's going to be a lot of faces who are in the squad now, even in the preseason squad, which will be far from the final squad. Yeah. Um, a lot of those players we may see for the last time in a Real Madrid during that preseason. Um, so it's it's going to be a dramatic change. But the one position, Matt, that I'm still, we kind of have no idea still what it's going to look like is the midfield slot. Yeah. Um, and I just think of all the changes you make in the team that that you just can't, you absolutely can't go back into next season with Kroos, Casemiro, Modric as your midfield. And I don't, I don't think, I think we really saw a clear decline in Modric's form this season, um, which was natural, and that's not his fault. That's just called age. Um, I think that Lopetegui didn't necessarily get the best of him earlier in the season. That may have set the tone. Obviously, his legs were completely toast um, after that World Cup. And, you know, Casemiro really hasn't returned to that 16-17 form fully. Kroos, um, I still believe in him. He's still young enough. Yeah, I, th- I think he'll be fine. But what the plan is there, I'm not entirely sure. And one player I'm not entirely sure, it will be fascinating to see what happens to is Isco. Because I think if Real Madrid go into next season not signing anyone else in midfield, or they strike out on all these guys they were trying to get, Pogba, Eriksson, uh, Van de Beek, whoever, uh, Isco all of a sudden becomes a more prominent figure, I think. If you sign one more player 
for that midfield slot, I start wondering about Isco's future again because I feel like he's too good to go through another season coming off the bench. And um, he should have more ambition to to kind of go somewhere else and play. That, that's an interesting one. Yeah, that that is an interesting one. His age as well. I mean, you pointed out in your article, he's 27 now. Like, you think this is the age where, um, I mean, he has to be playing. We've been saying that for the past couple of years now. But, um, yeah, I think given just how many players we have on our books and given all the transfer rumors and everything, I think, I mean, there's little doubt in my mind it's probably going to go down to the last day until everything's said and done. Um, we've seen it so many times before, and I think it likely will happen again where the full squad isn't nailed down until that final day. Yeah, um, it's going to be going to be fascinating. So uh, let's jump into patron questions. Patreon.com slash Managing Madrid is where you go to pledge. You get guaranteed responses to your questions. Get access to bonus shows, uh, which we we'll be doing a lot of, um, especially Matt. I can't wait till we see the final list of loanies so we can start oh, mapping yes. out our, uh, our loan tracker podcast and which games we have to watch. I can't wait to, uh, if I know you briefly talked about it with Gabe about Odegaard, if he does end up in La Liga, I'm going to be thrilled. What's your preference? Uh, so, so I was, or Leverkusen? yeah, I was thinking about it and like before I was really torn and I, um, I, I was happy, honestly happy with either spot, but now, the more I think about it, the more I, I really want to see him in La Liga. I really want to see him with yeah. Sociedad. So I, that maybe is a selfish reason, but um, I, I'm excited to see him there. Yeah, me too. Um, part of me also wants to do away with the the fear clause. I kind of want to see him go against Real Madrid. Yeah, um, I know. I agree. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> all right. First patron question. Frederick Rantakiro says, the idea of the first Galactico project was to build a squad of the best players in the world and players from the academy. Unfortunately for years, the best that came out of the academy was guys like Pavon and Raul Bravo. Uh, except, of course, Casillas, Raul, and Guti, who were all world-class but came before. Nowadays, we have produced a bunch of squad-quality players like Regulon, Nacho, Carvajal, Atraf, Llorente, Valverde, uh, Lucas, Mariano, Raul Tomas, Hermoso, etc., if it weren't for PSG inflating the market, do you think a Galactico project where we would sign one of the best players in the world every year would make more sense these days when we are producing so many good players ourselves? This is a this is an interesting question. I like this question. I think um, I would answer it as a yes, no. I say yes because obviously because we've just invested so much in our in our youth facilities in in La Fabrica and. Uh, we're reaping the benefits of that. Like he listed off all those names that are really, truly good Real Madrid quality squad players. And what I think needs to be pointed out, though, as well, is when guys that are like Casillas, Raul, Guti level, like international level players that could probably start for most any team in the world, out of that group, which we would say is probably, what, two decades since... Uh, maybe more since Casillas broke out. You probably only have Carvajal, Mata, and you could maybe, his career got cut short, but I would say De La Red was on that track of players who were starting quality for Real Madrid and starting quality for Spain and would yeah. be players that could play for other clubs. So that shows you how extremely difficult it is um, to find, like, to really 
for these players to break through and become Real Madrid stars and to become international stars. And um, I think, so irregardless, I think, yeah, it, it, it could work. And obviously it depends on the market conditions. And I think you would have better squad players. But whether or not you would still have like the Casillas, Raul Guti level type players is a, is a different question. Yeah, I you know I think the the answer to this question is also, you know, would if the market wasn't inflated, would we have more Galacticos? I think I also think the club wouldn't necessarily go that route just for the sake of it at this point. I think they have in the past, and it's right to assume that that's what they may do because they've done it before. But also, I think some some of the culture change with Mourinho coming in, and kind of getting a foothold on some of the transfers and, and who goes in and who goes out and what players he wanted, what fits his identity. And it also came back again with Zidane. Um, I think they they went, they did like that big splurge in 2009. And obviously a couple of those players were like just cornerstones for the next decade in Ronaldo and Benzema. Xabi Alonso, obviously really important for half a decade. And... Um, and some of the other signings, you know, they, you know, Modric going on his eighth season now, obviously like a huge, huge cornerstone. And it's, I think it's one of those things, like, I think if you stockpile in one year, you may, you may just not be able, at some point you can't sign a Galactico every year because signing yeah. the best players in the world every year, at some point there's a cap on it and you just run out of spaces and you need to, you need to kind of be careful with it. And that's essentially what we saw with Zidane in the last few years. He was like, okay, where are you going to fit? Ex Galactico, like we we're we're good. We're we're stocked up. We're deep. We already have disgruntled players who aren't getting playing time. You have to cap it, and so that culture I think changed. And I think I don't think it necessarily would have been any different if PSG didn't inflate the market because I think Real Madrid were the best team in the world for a couple of years there. Um, I think your point is interesting about you know the exceptions of Casillas, Raúl, and Guti. Um, it's it's always a fascinating debate. Because like you mentioned, there weren't really many players who, if you look back, who'd be Real Madrid quality in terms of just playing in reg- playing regularly. Um, you know, even Mata, I think, really at best would have been a bench player. Uh, as good as he, he was at Chelsea in particular and United later on. Um, I'm curious to know, because right now the culture seems to be leaning towards loaning and loaning and loaning and loaning and seeing what you got and see when they come back, are they better than the players we already have? Can we upgrade them? The, the loan culture is really strong right now. I'd be really curious to know if Raul and Casillas came up in today's today's Real Madrid, would they be loaned? Oh, I think so, for sure. Yeah. I I always have this, like I, I go through these free hypotheticals and, and wonder what would happen, but I, I would actually kind of be a little bit fearful of those players if they came up now. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, that is. That's that's an interesting point. And I mean, the only thing you could. I mean, Vinicius eruption has been kind of labeled similar to Raul. So that's the only thing you could say. Well, maybe he would have if he had gotten the opportunity and he scored what two goals on his debut. Uh, so maybe if he got the opportunity, he would he would have grabbed it. But even then, Vinicius was afforded that opportunity because of the off god awful season we had. So yeah. it's all circumstantial. Yeah. Um, well, I also, I, I guess, I just wonder too. Um, 
you know, if if Real Madrid, you know, because part of me has asked this question about other players in the past, and I've been wrong. So I'm I'm kind of accepting of like, you know, a lot of Castillo players are just not as good as we thought they were. Um, so for example, Soldado Negredo, these are all players yeah. like I thought, like you know, why aren't we keeping them and yeah. having them come off the bench and develop them? Turns out, like you fast forward years, years on, and like you know, they weren't actually that special, and and it was probably right to just to to sell them. Um, so, you know, like I, I do feel like there is something special though about this group of players, like everyone, in this list that Frederick listed are all players that you could, you could classify as really, really good squad players. Um, Regulon, Nacho, Carvajal, Ashraf, Llorente, Valverde, Lucas Vazquez, Mariano, Raul, Tomas, Hermoso, like these are all really good players. So I think this is actually a more special generation of, of youth players that, that we didn't have, I'd say like 20 years ago. Or ten years ago, yeah, I agree, and I think with guys like Regulon, Ashraf, uh, Valverde, even arguably Urente, it's still too early to even kind of say whether or not they they would have what what their mark would have been at Real Madrid. Obviously, yeah. check out the American Ninja Warrior podcast for a behind the scenes look at all the action of the show and more with your favorite competitors. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Spencer Hall. I'm Holly Anderson. I'm Ryan Nanny. I'm Jason Kirk. And we're the hosts of the Shutdown Fullcast, your Avengers of college football podcast. It says here in the script I'm to riff on what that means. And basically what I mean is it's all already spoiled. Every Tuesday, we talk about everything from cooking disasters to pro wrestling to unfashionable pants we wore in middle school. We also do talk about college football every now and then, like mascot fights, announcers fleeing the booth early, and unfashionable pants that coaches wear now. If you want to take college football exactly as seriously as it should be taken, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Um, question from... Christian Gonzalez, he says, where are the Milinkovic-Savage rumors? In my opinion, he's the closest thing to Pogba in the world. So this is, this is, uh, this is like the perfect example of what can happen in this market when a player has one good year and then um, his price just gets completely inflated and Lazio now have egg on their face because yeah. they should have sold him. I mean, they could have brought in $120 million. And they were they were holding out for like 150, and uh, now his his price has just plummeted. And I don't watch much Serie A, so I can't really comment on it. But I I don't think he was I think he was in and out of the Lazio team this year, wasn't he? And he just every time I've seen him play, I, I, he's looked okay, but he's never been like he's never awed me. Yeah, and uh, I think if you so like. This is really interesting for all the reasons you mentioned, but also because um, the fact that Real Madrid didn't go for him, they probably dodged a bullet. Yeah. And Lazio should have just cashed in on him. And, not, and that's not to say you know he can't rebound from his from this. He's twenty four. Um, he took a he took a regression this year. He wasn't the same as he was two seasons ago. Um, I kind of for this reason. And when I, I look at that um, Jao Felix transfer for uh, for Atletico that was announced shortly before recording, yeah. and uh, they're paying an astronomical amount. I think it's $125 million, if I'm not mistaken. And the sample size of Jao Felix is like a good six months of, <laughs> of really good football. 
And if, you know, if he turns out really good and he continues his development, he's, he looks like a really good player. If, he, if that just turns out to be a fluke season, then like in the, you know, Milinkovic-Savage kind of sense, that's, that's a scary fee and it's going to be hard to rebound from. And certainly you're not going to be able to ever flip him for a profit. That's just a sunk cost. You could say the same thing about Luka Jovic, but Jovic, um, it wasn't nearly as big a risk um, because his fee was like yeah. less than half the price. So, you know, this it is an interesting... This is why like when sometimes, you know, people will say, why would X team sell him? You know, they could boost his value in a couple years it's not always a guarantee yeah yeah and i think that's why we saw real madrid haggle so much on the jovic price and get it down to 60 i mean mm. we we talked about this and yeah. there, there's no guarantee that next year he could he would do the same thing so it was it was the right move sheikh atiri says there's a lot of talk that mbappe wants to come to madrid how the fuck did we navigate that or do we navigate that we are already facing some troubles to balance the budget this year to abide by FFP. We have spent so much money and we have Jovic and Benzema for the center, Vinicius on the left, Bale on the right, where Mbappe doesn't play any where Mbappe doesn't play anyways. To be clear, this is not 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 a question against against his purchase. This is for you for you to tell me how we can take advantage of this once in a lifetime opportunity. Well, I think I mean F, FFP. There's we could get into the nitty gritty, and probably Gabe's the best to talk about it. But um, to keep it in simplistic terms, Real Madrid would have to sell, and Real Madrid is selling right now, and we're seeing that we're selling pretty well. And we've got, as you mentioned at the start of the pod, plenty of players we still need to get off our books. So by the season's end, by this the end of this transfer window, I mean, I don't think our our net spend is really going to be that high. And um, obviously, the past three years or so, we really we've kind of reined it in with with what we spent compared to what we sold. And so, I I really don't think it'll be an issue, especially when a player like Mbappe comes in. You you the club finds a way to make it happen, whether it means selling another big star. Like it, it it'll it'll get done. I don't think FFP should be should be the worry. Um, that's right, and I. I, I think like we we talked about this. I, I don't know if I don't remember if it was you with you, Matt. I think it was with you. They're pretty safe from FFP this summer, um, and like you know they could easily go out and splash 150 million on Pogba, and uh, you know as we know like these this 150 million, it's not it doesn't all go into one year's budget. It gets amortized over like X amount of years, yeah. so you're not paying 150 million one year. You're paying maybe fifty million over three years or whatever it is. However, it gets amortized. Um, Mbappe would be obviously, I assume, more expensive, like two hundred million or north of that. So I I don't think he's attainable this year anyway. But Agreed. you know, if if you wait till his contract runs down a bit, I think that's more realistic. Uh, but if the situation arose where they they could get him this season, I would assume that they would just they would just make it work. Yeah. Um. Question from Mikhail Nilsson. Two questions. One, picture the scenario where the worst case scenario happens this season. As in, another really bad start to the season in the league. The new players don't mesh at all with resulting dressing room drama. And Zizou's new tactics completely fall flat. 
How much faith will the socios and Uncle Flo keep? Do you think Zidane would get a full season even if it was as bad as this, as this past one due to the um, triple Champions League titles? So I don't know if this is a bold claim or not, but I'm going to say no doubt in my mind that Zidane will get the full season. I think he probably gets two seasons unless it just goes catastrophically bad in the season and a half because it it's already gotten to pretty much the bottom of the barrel this past season. And um, the club's now forced to put their put all of their faith, all of their trust into Zidane. And I think that was probably a prerequisite, as we know, for him coming back. And so there's little doubt in my mind, no matter how bad it gets this season, that he will, unless we get relegated or something, he's he's going to be Madrid's manager. I think this is, but, but I would say to add to that, though, I agree with you, but I would say this. I think this is the sh- uh, shortest leash of all of his seasons and the most pressure he'll have. Um, he had zero pressure when he came in charge uh, after Benitez got sacked. Zero pressure there. Whatever happens, happens. He ended up impressing, obviously. He stays. He had an unbelievable 16-17 season. Stays. 17-18, not so great, but, you know, um, Champions League title, you can't fire a coach after that. Uh, then he left. And then this season, when he came... When he came back, let's be honest, it was incredibly underwhelming, but the context is, you know, it was a dead season and you can't expect anything. There was no pressure on him. Now he has no excuse because he has a full summer of signing players he wants. He he chose to sell, and he's going to choose to sell a lot of players that uh, fans liked and socios liked. And... Um, and so if it goes south, this is probably the most pressure he's had to to deliver. I'd, I'd, I'd be shocked if he gets fired by the end of the season. But um, if it gets really bad, and I don't know what bad means, but bad for Lopetegui meant uh, one of the longest scoring droughts in history of the club and, uh, and a 5-1 classical loss. If he goes through something like by Christmas, you know, he's had a, a bad classical loss. He's like outside the Champions League zone. Things just aren't aren't working. A lot of the problems from last year resurface. Then there there at least will be some rumblings. And for Florentino, it's much easier to, at that point, after already spending so much money and selling players, buying players, the easiest answer is to, to replace the coach and, and probably do it in a way where it's not like, you don't fire Zidane publicly, but you probably have a meeting with him behind closed doors and like ask him to respectfully resign or something. Is my guess is that would be the worst case scenario, I think. Yeah, and I just to build on that, I just think the media pressure and the fan pressure will probably be if things really if things start to really go downhill will be a lot stronger than anything from the boardroom or from Florentino. Second part of Mikhail's question, uh, Real Madrid has been really bad at winning against smaller teams in the must-win games uh, in the previous years. Is it just down to the players being complacent or the game plan to predict, uh, or the game plan is too predictable and easy to break? Is it something else? How could this be fixed in this coming season? He also says, have you guys considered getting a Discord either for patrons only, only or for everyone? I don't know what a Discord is. It's a do you know what Discord is? I feel like I'm too old. No, I I'm not. I don't really know. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Let us know what Discord is. I mean, a quick Google search just tells me it's some kind of server, but it sounds like it sounds like some uh, 
some some stuff that I have no idea about. <laughs> um, uh, the yeah, the, no, the leak format, I think, is it's one of those undecipherable things. I think there are games, and I've written about this in the past, where there are clearly times during throughout the season where you can see the body language is off. Um, it's a bit lethargic. And the motivation just isn't there. And Zidane has publicly talked about this. Like there was that stretch where Real Madrid were just so bad in the first half. And then they would kind of play better in the second half. Sometimes it was too late to recover from. And he would consistently say after each game, we need to start better. We know this problem, but we just can't, for, for whatever reason, we can't start games better because, you know, we're just kind of going through the motions. I don't know what the answer to that is. <clears throat> and I don't know if you do. Well, <clears throat> the only thing I would say is that I'm not a proponent of Mourinho, but I would say that during his time here, the standard he set and the mentality he set, especially for those types of games, is what helped us, especially in that 2012 season where we won the league by 100-some points. And um, that, like, that's that's where it's got to – Zidane's just got to be ruthless in his standards and just expect the very, very best of, of his players and have – it's all it's really is mental um and i think that comes from the top that comes from the coach and we saw it with Mourinho. i mean that you hear stories of just how demanding he is um one more patron question then we get to talk about some fun uh Real history varun says how indispensable can sergio ramos be this season and the seasons to come i'm asking this because varan at the age of 26 is indispensable Believe me, Militao is so so good. The moment he gets his chance this year as a center back, he will not he will nail the spot and show his class. Then the issue of whom to play against amongst Ramos, Vara, and Militao arises. Uh Carvajal, Riozola, and Marcelo and Mendy, those are perfect combinations. I hate to say this, but I think Sergio Ramos might be redundant after a point for Zizou in this season. That's what I feel. Please throw some light on this. Um you go ahead, Matt. Um, yeah, so I I think it is, I think Sergio Ramos will have to slowly be edged out of the team just because of his age. Um, but I, I still think he's going to be one of the first name on the team sheets when it comes to the big games. I think he'll be playing, but I do think he needs, I mean, he played over like Benzema played over 3,500 minutes last year, which is way too much. I mean, he needs to be playing probably close to 2000 2500 and i wouldn't say any more than that and um so militao should have should have a role to play militao should get plenty of minutes and he should hopefully show show his class um i was upset last night that he didn't get the nod over miranda uh in the yeah, brazil game yeah i was surprised at that um that's i'm i'm imagining that that won't be a long-term thing but it was it was disappointing because i was really excited to uh to see Militao play. Um, I, I think there is definitely a scenario where Zidane will just, will strategically rest Ramos kind of like planning ahead, looking at the schedule, like this is where you rest, this is where you play. We we saw similar things like that that Zidane did with Modric and Ronaldo in the past. Yeah. So I think we'll see that this year. Having said that, I actually have haven't really seen any signs of Ramos slowing down. Yeah, and this is this is one thing I've thought about. Um, just just casual thoughts going through my head, but we I don't disagree that Ramos is inconsistent throughout a season. But when it comes down, if you look at the past decade or more, 
he's probably the most consistent center back at the top level along with PK. I don't think any two I don't think anybody else comes close to them. Um yeah. And you remember Angelotti had that pretty famous quote where he said there are two players that really don't need rest because they're physical freaks and they're there's complete just specimens and anomalies in terms of athletes. One is Ronaldo and the other one was Ramos. Yeah. And uh, I I can see that because I, you know, he, you know, it was kind of interesting. Like we were watching that game against Valencia in 2008 and uh, we'll talk about it. But, it, you know, just yeah. it he's he's aged so well and uh, and he looks good. I thought he had he had one. He had a pretty good season amid all the disaster of the season. I think like him and like a handful of other people. I don't you know, I, I never really saw anything that was bad from them. Um, relatively speaking, I think Ramos has been good. So I, I think I. There's a scenario where he rests and he plays le- plays less, but that I think that the goal of that is to have him fresh in April and May so that he can play those big games without being fatigued or whatever. And he's, I mean, Ramos has been starting for Real Madrid since 2005. Like that's just yeah, it's wild. <laughs> when you really think about that, that's unbelievable. So, um, as you all know, we have this new segment on the Management Podcast where we look. We rewatch old Real Madrid games, and in some cases, I think we haven't hit this stage yet. But we'll probably even go back far enough and watch games we've never seen before, um, whether it's black and white games or games from the seventies, eighties, before we were born. And um, this is the f- fourth edition of this. So we did um, Real Madrid versus Lazio two thousand. We did Real Madrid versus. Real Zaragoza in the Copa del Rey, what year, 2006, Matt? Uh, yeah, 2005, 2006. Right, and then we did Real Madrid against Manchester United in 2003. For this segment, we did the Supercopa of España, 2008, against Valencia. Can you set us up, Matt? Give us a little background on this. Yeah, so this was the Supercopa right before the start of the season. Uh, Bern Schuster is the coach. It's his second season after winning La Liga last year. Um, our starting 11 was Casillas in goal, Ramos at right back, Pepe in Heinze, the center backs, Miguel Torres at left back. Um, then in midfield, you had Robin on the right, Vandervaart on the left, Guti and Mamadou Diara in the middle, Raul and Ruud up top. And then this Valencia team was that just such a fun Valencia team. They had Silva, Villa, Mata, Albelda, Albiol, Joaquin. I mean, it was it was a really great team. So um, that kind of sets the stage for us. And this was also pre-match. All the hype was around Rabinho because he was about to – he was making pleas to leave and everyone was kind of – all the, the media was surrounding Rabinho and – uh, this was right before he left for Manchester, surprisingly left for Manchester City. Everyone thought he was going to go to Chelsea. Right. Um, I think he was on the bench in this game. There yeah. were a few signs uh, in the stands and and kind of whistles when he came out of the tunnel and sat on the bench. And uh, so this was the second leg of the Supercopa. Valencia, obviously the, the Spanish Cup champions in the league the year before, Real Madrid, the league champions of the year before. And Real Madrid lost the first leg three two at the Mestalla. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's um, that's so that's where we are. So now we head into this game at the Bernabeu. Real Madrid down three two on aggregate, and they face a Valencia team which, on paper, is actually kind of mind blowing. Yeah. Um, so their starting lineup 
is uh, Hildebrand in goal. Uh, Albiol, Alexis, Miguel, Moretti. Albiol obviously going to be a Real Madrid player at some point. Albelda Baraja, Del Pivot, who at the time were two really, really good Spanish midfielders. Yeah. Joaquin and David Silva, and then David Villa and Juan Mata in attack. Just on paper, actually ridiculous. And off the bench, they brought in Vicente, who was one of my favorite Spanish players growing up. Obviously, just riddled with injuries, but incredible talent. Uh, Morientes came off the bench. Uh, at the I time, forgot Morientes played for them too. Yeah, at the time, also Ivan Halguera, I think, was on the bench that game. I could be wrong. Um, let me just double check that because I believe I actually saw him physically on the bench. Um, yeah, he was there. So, um, and that, but I, I guess it was kind of interesting, Matt, because you look at that Valencia team, it actually kind of disappointed overall. They never really amounted to much. Later, Villa went to Barcelona and won a bunch of stuff. David Silva obviously had a very successful career. Juan, Mont- Juan Mata did, did well in England too, but other than that, they didn't really amount to much. They, the only trophy they really won during that entire era was that Spanish Cup from the year before. Champions League, they never progressed past uh, the quarterfinals. They bounced out in the group stage that year. Um, then they went into the UEFA Cup because they finished 10th. Like it just, you know, so it yeah. didn't really amount to much. But anyway, so take us into this game now, um, kind of just to, to how, how it went down. Yeah, so I'll, I'll give us a quick rundown of just kind of the match highlights. And so um, first half, Madrid were really poor. I mean, the whole team kind of ran through Guti in the middle. And unfortunately, a lot of his passes in the first 15 especially were way off the mark. He was trying to put, hit his beautiful through balls and just none of them were coming off. And so Valencia were really the better team in the first half, and David Silva scored a beautiful goal um, from outside the box with his left foot. So Valencia one nothing up, 4-2 on aggregate, and Madrid really had it all to do. And then to make matters worse, Rafael van der Vaart, who was going really hard into tackles the whole game, goes in, studs up in the 40th minute and gets a direct red. And so Madrid are down to 10 men. And fortunately, who else but Sergio Ramos scores off a scores off a corner kick to to or actually sorry I, I skipped a skipped a play. We Madrid did earn a penalty before the end of the half, and Ruben mm. Nistelrooy took that penalty and scored equalized it one one, and then Madrid with ten men uh, managed to take the lead through Sergio Ramos off a, off a corner kick, um, and. It was it was fun to I'm I'm interested to hear your thoughts about Ramos at right back in this game, um, and then you gradually would go through the game. Valencia is trying to find their way, continue to push, and Madrid again only had ten men, and sure enough, another late bad tackle this time from Rude Van Nistelrooy, and Madrid go down to nine men. Yeah, the seventy second minute, Madrid go down to nine men, and so it's nine v eleven, two one. Madrid are trying to hold on to this, and um, Schuster makes a double substitution. He brings on De La Red and Gonzalo Higuain, who this was his breakout year this year. And um, it was, I mean, 85th minute, Ruben De La Red seals it with a beautiful curled-in goal from probably close to 30 yards out. And um, he had just come off one of the most incredible seasons at Catafé, and I'm sure we'll go into this as well. But uh, he and, and and a Euro Cup performance with uh, the Euro 2008 with Spain, and he just kind of cemented his 
his role for Real Madrid with that goal. And then eventually uh, Higuain would score a fourth kind of off a goalkeeper mistake. And Morientes would get a goal for Valencia. So it would end 4-3 all, all at the end. Those three goals were all after the 85th minute. So it was, it was a hectic finish, but it was just crazy. Madrid had nine men for a large part of this game and still managed to turn it around against this really, really strong Valencia team. So I'm, I'm really, as I mentioned before, I'm really glad you chose this game because it, it took me back and, and it was really fun to go through. And I, <clears throat> I remember watching this game in my parents' basement with my dad. I was 20. And I remember having fun watching it. And we were obviously ecstatic at the result. It really peaked, I think, when Della Red scored. And it was, you know, that was kind of my favorite moment in all of it. But yeah. I hadn't rewatched that game since or really revisited it apart from seeing a couple highlights. And uh, I think what, what struck me was that this was kind of a team in transition because Van der Vaart had just come in. And uh, obviously you mentioned Robinho was on his, on his way out. Um, I'm just kind of looking at the transfers that year. So Huntelaar arrived mid-season, I believe. Yeah. Um, Van der Vaart had just come in. Ezekiel Garay, who... Um, really, I think only played two seasons and really was irrelevant for for most of his career. De La Red had just come back from Getafe, and Baptista Robinho out. Casano returned back to Sampdoria, and I think one of the things that kind of stood out to me was that the center back situation was pretty dire at that at that oh, point yeah. to the point that. In the first leg, the center back pairing was Javi Garcia and Gabriel Heinze, neither oh, of them man. actual center backs. The second leg in this one, Pepe had Pepe came in and Gabriel Heinze was was the center back again. I will say this about Heinze. He actually really impressed me in this game. Um, yeah, he did. Yeah, he, he did. was yeah. really good defensively. His passing was was okay. Like um he had a couple of forced long balls when he didn't need to, and I would have just rather he just played an easy pass to Guti and let him create. But he was good defensively in this game and actually pretty much had Villa in his back pocket anytime there was that, you know, a duel between them two. The center back pairing was worrying and then the bench had no center backs either. So it's not like you could have just um you could have just brought somebody in. Um Miguel Torres, Matt, this guy, I I had nothing nothing about him was interesting to me. <laughs> I remember him watching him when I was younger and I Something it was confirmed to me today when I rewatched it again. He is completely allergic to crossing the halfway line. <laughs> he is allergic to playing vertical passes. His entire his entire football repertoire was getting the ball and just passing it backwards, and that that was it. Um, yeah, and so, so he wasn't inspiring. Like Drenthe, for all the for all the weird weirdness that he was, was actually just at least a little bit more fun to watch when he came in. Yeah. So. I mean, for Miguel Torres, like nobody, he he kind of broke through uh, during that 2006 end of the 2006 season under Capello, and I mean it, it was incredible. It was actually surprising how long he lasted, and um, he, you're right, like he, I don't know what it was about him. Like he just, we all, he seemed to last so long because we always won when he was in the team, even though he didn't really do anything. And uh, he was just—he was a solid defensive player, really. He just brought very little to the attack, and he was right-footed, playing left back. Um, and 
Yeah, he was. It was interesting because he came up during like the Granero, De La Red, Negrero, Mata, like that kind of generation of players, and no one really talked about him. Nobody knew him, but mm. he somehow made his he made his way up, and la- he lasted pretty well. Um, and but yeah, it was just like we talked about it. Marcelo is part of this team, and M- not only was Miguel Torres in front of him, but Drenthe was the one brought in um, by Schuster late in the game to kind of give Madrid more attacking impetus from that position. And I wanted to ask you about Trent today. What, what was your thoughts when we first signed him and kind of the hype surrounding him and afterwards and everything? It was exciting at the time. Uh, I don't know. I think it was the Euros that he yeah. won the tournament's best young player. It must have been a youth. U21. U21 Euros. Euros and he, was, uh, he won the tournament's MVP. He had a lot of flair. Um, and I'd say like his first season was still like really promising. And then you look at his... You look at his Wikipedia, basically, <laughs> after that, Hercules, Everton, and then a bunch of teams that I can't even pronounce. I don't even know what country they're in. He's still yeah. playing. He plays for Sparta Rotterdam. Um, 32 appearances this season, five goals. That's, well, uh, that's cool. I don't know. I don't even know. That must not even be in the first division, though. Yeah. Well, he... Uh, are, are they? I don't know. I think they're in the I second division of the Eredivisie, right? Yeah. Because I, I remember being so excited for him. Like, you, yeah. you saw, like, him the scissor. He kind of had, like, he was, like, a pacier, like, younger, raw Ronaldinho almost. Like, that's mm. kind of how what he felt to us. Like, and he, uh, you just, there was so much hype surrounding him after that tournament. And everyone thought he was going to be just an incredible signing. And then he scored an unbelievable Golasso in his debut in the the Supercopa from last year. Was the that the one year. against Sevilla, I think? Yeah, 2007. Yeah, that yeah. was a great goal. Yeah, and so everybody thought, like, oh, this guy's going to be incredible. And then it just, another, it just goes to show you, I mean, these talent, you never know what's really going to happen. They all have different different career trajectory, different career paths. But yeah. he was he was an interesting player. And he had all, all the just capability, like physical tools to just be an incredible fullback. I was uh, out of uh, all the, all four matches that we've watched for this segment. This was the most. This was the closest one to modern football in terms of just how it looked. Yeah. Um, you know, just like it, it would just kind of pass more for a to- a game like today, um, where I think Valencia's tactics were were pretty good, uh, and obviously Unai Emery, the coach. I don't think they looked good offensively, but they defended well. Um, yeah. To like you know, and I thought Real Madrid did a good job of kind of nullifying and most of Valencia's buildup. But Valencia defended well, and pretty much early on in the first half, really, the only chances that Real Madrid were getting were um, Van der Vaart creating a long range shot on his own, or Van Nistelrooy doing the same. Yeah. Um, twice, twice each they had long range shots, and uh, and it was either parried away for a corner or or it was just saved. And that was really Real Madrid's offense. Um, and I think there wasn't really enough from midfield. And, I, you know, Mamadou Diara, good player, really strong getting um, on the end of headers on corners. Good defensively. Uh, his passing in this game wasn't good. And I don't think it was overall at all, like yeah. in his career. Um, his through balls were shockingly overhit or just misplaced. And to make matters worse, I think, for Real Madrid, you kind of alluded to this. Guti actually had a really bad game. Yeah. Um, I think, like, overall, not just early. Like, and, you know, there was a period in the first half where, like, every every one of his passes was just ridiculously bad. And you, people started, the fans started whistling him. And then you remember, like, oh, yeah, this thing, 
that Real Madrid fans do, it was always like it was always like this. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, we immortalize Guti, um, and we immortalize like all of our players. But then you kind of go back and like you just relive it, and you're like, you know what? <laughs> it was it was just like today. Like, players yeah. are inconsistent. They make the wrong decisions. Sometimes they're just bad. Sometimes it's not their day. Sometimes they're brilliant. And it was a bit of this was one of Guti's not good days, but he's still obviously a brilliant player. Just this this particular one, he was a bit careless with the ball. His passing wasn't good. Um, and because he was really the creative fulcrum of the team, um, with Mohamed Diara next to him, and especially when Van der Vaart got sent off, like it was so much on him, and he just really didn't deliver. I think that affected the team's offensive flow, especially Matt, because if you actually look at the attack. Raul was quiet, really quiet. Yeah, um, did some good defensive work. Van Nistelrooy was did what he could, um, and Robin really until the second half was really quiet as well. So they didn't really have much going offensively until the second half. Yeah, and then in the second half, I think it's hands down. Robin was just yeah, man, the man. He was unbelievable. Like he was taking four players on on his own and <laughs> just that's how we survived with nine men was simply because of robin yeah and uh i mean if he would have stayed i mean if you remember the previous season it was always robinho versus robin and robin was always injured so it always gave robinho the edge and when they played together it was great but um how could you fit robinho raul and rude and robin together and then i mean if he honestly could have just stayed fit i don't think he would have been untouchable. Like I don't think Florentino would have sold him because he just he was so so good when he was fit. But it was just so he. I think he was worse than Bale uh, when he was at Madrid. Yeah, it was and pretty bad. If it, it was so, that was the frustrating thing. And in this game, you saw just how good he was, and I was I was blown away with him. But when you talked about Diara, I I wrote down specifically in my notes a question to ask you. So. Here's the question for you. Who would you rather have receiving a ball in the single pivot role with two Vidal-like midfielders closing down, Casemiro or Diara? Casemiro, because Casemiro has a higher ceiling of like, holy shit, where did he pull that from? Like, <laughs> yeah. He, yeah. Uh, he'll, have, he'll have games where he just like, he pulls like some of this, <laughs> some ridiculous things out of his ass. And yeah. uh, you're like, why can't you do that every game? So... And also because Casemiro is just obviously a better player better, overall, yeah, has won yeah. more, has been through like adverse situations. So Casemiro every day of the week. But yeah, um, I just want to go back to what you said about Robin really quickly. Uh, I think that kind of is one of the bigger what ifs of the last fifteen years or so in Real Madrid's history, if they had kept him. Because he goes on to Bayern, and while he definitely missed his fair share of games, he was never that completely fragile Real Madrid player. Yeah. Um, and he kind of, so he kind of something got figured out there. I don't don't ask me what it was because I'm not a sports scientist or a doctor or a physician or whatever. But obviously, he was great at Bayern, and that is the best part of his career after he left Real Madrid. And was a terrifying player to defend. And this game was a testament to, like, this was a masterclass from him. Because he was, in the first half, he was quiet. Um, basically, from the 55th minute on, it was the Robin show in this game. Yeah. It's really when he when he also switched to the right, Matt. Because on the right flank, he was devastating. On the left, he wasn't really getting involved as much. So the what if is this. If 
instead of buying Kaka, Real Madrid just had Robin and Ronaldo on the flanks. I I don't can't say for sure that it would it would have worked. And it would have been interesting to see how those two actually would have gotten along together because they kind of were both a bit of hot hothead and and uh, and and they liked the ball at their feet. But I can say that I'd be very interested. And certainly, Kaka was such a bust that it couldn't have been worse than what Kaka brought. Although Kaka was like okay for like you know he was good for the first little bit of it. Yeah. But if we had gotten to see Robin and Ronaldo on the flanks, man, that would have been that would have been really fun to watch. Yeah. Oh my God, that would have been. It is. A, it it would be interesting because, like you said, they both are kind of got that alpha mentality, and so it'd be interesting to see how they would coexist. But yeah, oh, that that would have been great to watch. Yeah. So that Della Red goal, um, it uh, it's also kind of sad revisiting it, right? Because yeah, I'm I'm happy to go on a long Della Red tangent because I loved him. Well, go I ahead would... because I mean, like that goal. <laughs> Um, it was such a beautiful goal and maybe encompasses intelligence because he just brings the ball forward in transition. He has multiple options, a lot of space. He has a, just the recognition to look up, look at the keeper's positioning and just kind of loft it, finesse it over him and curl it around him. Uh, and obviously after that, you know, in the in October 30th was the date where he, he collapsed on the pitch and um, he obviously just retired not long after. So, um, you, you just start wherever you want to start with with De La Red. Yeah, so I mean, De La Red was one of these a player came through our youth youth academy. Um, was always talked about as one of like the top guys along with Mata and Granero. He was a little bit older than them, and um, he and Granero both went to Getafe, and I think he, he may have spent two years there, one or two years, definitely, obviously, definitely one, but uh, his final season there, on like, similar to the year that Getafe had this year, he actually, so it was two years, and the second year, he, the first year, they had finished in a UEFA Cup spot, mm-hmm. and so the second year, they made it, I think, to the quarter or semifinals of the UEFA Cup, and were playing Tottenham in White Hart Lane, like, this was unprecedented for Getafe. And um, he was by far their best player. He was just carrying that team. It was incredible. Like, it was so fun. Like, Getafe were so fun to watch with those two, with Granero and De La Red in the team. And um, he, I mean, he he just, he was a player that kind of had it all. He was probably best in a defensive double pivot role. I think he would have been perfect next to Xabi Alonso. Um, I just think he would have been a more well-rounded Kadira. And um, it's such a shame that this ended up happening to him because it was right when he was breaking out and he had made the Spanish Cup, the Euro 2008 squad. That's right, uh, yeah. was not a starter, but he scored in the game uh, against Greece, which was the third match where kind of all the reserves got to play and was a huge standout and scored in that game. And, um, like, his career was really starting to explode. He was earning, during that time, he was starting to earn a starting position with Real Madrid. And um, when all this, then obviously he collapsed on the field and had heart issues. And it was, I was like a huge, because for me, I I was younger back then. And I just was so excited to have someone come up through the youth again. It felt like it had been so long that we had like someone really, really talented and good and who could actually do it and make it. 
come up through the youth academy and be a star. And it was such a shame to see him uh, have to bow out because he he was just so sk- skillful, graceful, just such a calm midfielder. And it, it would have been great to see him paired next to Xabi Alonso. He would have been, or he was supposed to be in, in many ways, the answer to our midfield problems, um, which we never really f- truly found a solution for. Even when Xabi Alonso came, he was alone for a lot of it. He didn't have much help. Um, really, I, really until Modric came along, that that uh, midfield still wasn't um, yeah. what it should be in terms of just in terms of a Real Madrid midfield. And I'm not sure if I have much to add to that, other than that I was really excited for Del Red. I think we all were. He, I think above all, he seemed to have a tactical intelligence, really good tech, technical ability, good head on his shoulders. Um, really, really exciting prospect, and obviously, it just it didn't work out for health reasons. And thankfully, he's healthy and now, and you know, obviously, that's more important than playing. Um, you know, but it, it was kind of a bummer. And I'm looking at kind of the trajectory of that team, the 2008-2009 team. They they obviously won the back-to-back La Liga championships from 06 to 08. They came second in this year, and then uh, in the the Champions League round of 16, uh, that was that was the Liverpool uh, yeah. loss, yeah, the big was. one yeah. at Anfield. Uh, yeah. Ryan O'Hanlon and I talked about this a little bit when he was on the podcast last week, two weeks ago, I don't know when it was. Um, but that was such a, such a terrible Real Madrid night in their history in terms of everything, in terms of how badly they got outclassed and how humiliated and Casillas even made it Casillas kept it at a respectable 4 0. Yeah. Could have been worse. Um, but in also in terms of just the dignity of the team, I felt that day was really rock bottom because no one on the field looked even capable of fighting for the, the, the shirt and everyone like looked lost. And that was, you know, we went from being excited about Della Red to like seeing Gago and Lasana DR getting completely <laughs> overrun in midfield. And just looking completely out of, had no idea how to survive this mess. And um, so, you know, those midfield problems lasted pretty well for a while. Uh, but that was that was a really bad moment. Um, that Liverpool game was really, and that was the wake-up call. You know, the, obviously what ensued was a lot and of the, spending. the 6-2 loss to Barcelona was that year too in the Barnabeu. Right. So, right. Um, and that was when Pep's team was starting to get become formed. And so... Uh, or was it? It was the following. Or no, it was that year. It was that year. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it was. That's kind of what was the catalyst for the revolutionary summer that followed. Um, but yeah, I wanted to get your thoughts on um, Schuster because I, I I liked him and I I thought it was unfair that he got fired so early in this season. What were your thoughts on him and what were your thoughts on the sacking? Um, when did he get sacked? Was it? It was it was a midway through the season. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, it was. I I can't remember how early it was, but um, Juan de Ramos came in. I think after him. So I I can't remember. Was he was Schuster on the bench when during the six two or was it Juan de Ramos? No, it was Juan de. I it think. was Juan de. I think that was later in the season. Yeah. So my my issue with most of these things is that, um, well, also part of the 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 reason. Um, with with there was there was some issues with Schuster too because I think the board didn't appreciate there was a, a point where he publicly said that uh, we're we're just not going to win the league and we can't against this Barcelona team and he kind of like threw in the towel and 
that didn't sit well with a lot of people on the board. Um, and obviously, I don't I don't think he was a fan favorite to begin with because um, he was he was obviously a Barcelona player and and a very um, heated rival of Real Madrid as a player uh, who went up against you know the Quinta del Buitre era. But I I would say this I don't I don't think the problem with sacking these decisions of sacking a, a coach mid season is like it generally never is a, works in, for the, in the favor of the club. Um, you know, and and in that era, Real Madrid were shuffling through so many coaches and not and never really putting them in a better position. Uh, and this is a this is a coach obviously who had won the league before, the year before, and obviously Juan de Ramos was a disaster too. So like they didn't they didn't solve anything by doing it. So overall, I would have just probably waited uh, yeah, until the season was over. Schuster had specifically asked in the summer for. Um... The signings of Villa, Dani Alves, and Fabregas, who was at Arsenal at the time, and didn't get any of them. Villa was really, really close, if you remember, but um, none of them materialized, and I think that also didn't help his cause. Yeah, um, you know, as 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 a manager overall, I think he was he was pretty good. I mean, um, he had that big victory in the Camp Nou in 2007, which was one of it was a really good performance from Real Madrid. I think defensively, they were pretty rock solid. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously they won the league title. They, they were, I think they were generally pretty good under him. Um, I'm just trying, I'm just looking at it now though. Just trying to find the quote if I can. So basically this is in December after a 4-3 loss to Sevilla. Um, that's when he came out and publicly said that they have no chance of beating Barcelona in a Clásico. Not even in the league. They said they have no chance of beating Barcelona in a Clásico. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, so then he was pretty much sacked after. I think that was the nail in the coffin was that public <laughs> yeah. statement. Because this is, I mean, this is for any club, but especially for Real Madrid, a club of like, um, you know, of the stature of Real Madrid where there's no such thing as throwing in the towel. There's no such thing as shying away from your rivals this is a club with a lot of pride so to say that publicly i think was that's the one thing that stood out to me it was like it may have been less about results at that point although results probably had something to do with it but more about that statement yeah um we kind of briefly glossed over this but how raw was marcelo that year that uh miguel torres left back and his backup was royce and drente and marcelo was <laughs> yeah I don't even think he was on the... Oh, yeah, he was on the bench that day. Yeah, and he... I mean, Marcel had gotten some decent minutes the season prior because I know he was kind of switching with um, Heinze because Heinze would play left-back or center-back. But, um, yeah, th- I mean, even in the start of this season, he, he didn't really... wasn't part major part of the rotation. He gradually... He started playing when, when Juan de Ramos came in. He started playing left-winger, if you remember, and scored some goals... Um, and actually did really well there. And then um, gradually, once Pellegrini came in, moved back to left back. Yeah. But um, that was three, that was what? So he came in summer or winter 2006. So that was three years after he arrived. He still hadn't really cemented his place or anything like that. Yeah. And I remember, you know, you could you could definitely see how raw he was um, in those first few years. Um well, he came in 2007, so this would have been... I think this would have only been his second year, right? 
So I remember him. <laughs> I remember it through jury. So I know he, the 2006, 2007 team, he came in the winter. So right. then he played the next season, which was his, was the league title season. And then, yeah, so this was his like second, really his second season, yeah. two and a half. Yeah. Um, as you mentioned, Higuain's breakout year, and obviously of the three that were signed that year, Marcelo and Higuain had the, the two best careers. I would rank Marcelo one, Higuain two, Gago uh, a distant, distant third. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anything else from this match? Uh, just wanted to get your thoughts. The only other thing was get your thoughts that Sergio Ramos at right back in this match. Oh, yeah. I forgot to talk about that. I, uh, I wanted to talk to you about this. It was so, it's so weird to me watching those games where Ramos played right back. Um, it's he's a completely different player there. Yeah, <laughs> it's a completely like different person, player, everything. Um, I don't know how we ever saw him as a right back. Now that you see uh, like years of sample size as being one of the best center backs in the world, <laughs> and it's not that he was bad at right back. It's just completely different dynamic. Um, yeah, he's an athletic freak. He always was. He uh, he doesn't seem to be. the the greatest dribbler and that's like a pretty big asset you need at the wing back position if you're attacking wing back. Um a couple of times in this game he just dribbled into his opponents trying to beat them off the dribble. Um he has an interesting interesting cross on him that is a bit unorthodox the way he swings it in. Yeah. I can't even picture him putting that cross in now. <laughs> I can't I physically yeah, cannot yeah. picture him on the right putting a cross in. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah, no I mean that that's what kind of made him a good attacking right back were his crosses because his crosses were pretty good and usually pretty accurate, although they were unorthodox. And he was, like you said, just so athletic. Like he, so fast and just, just a specimen, like you said. And um, like you could see that in, every, in each play he made. And um, he had a few kind of wayward passes and things, just little clumsy fouls and stuff like that. But um, he did, I mean, his game was just bombarding forward and trying to be that overlap and get across and really it was just kind of be an outlet on the right flank yeah and uh and i mean he was so good at that position for sevilla too when he was when before real just signed him um and he was pretty good there at the right back position and then there were times where he played center back kind of sporadically through his first years at real Madrid, and every time he did it didn't look good and so everyone was like this guy has to stay away from center back and uh Ultimately, Mourinho was the one who was like, "You're you're just a center back now." Like I, you know, that was when he really cemented um, his position there. And I think there was one time. Well, there was one time where that really freak game against Dortmund, where Real Madrid lost four one. Yeah. Yep, that's where the one. he tried to squeeze in Pepe, Ramos. Varane. Was it Varane? Was it yeah, th- yeah, yeah. And so he put he shoehorned Ramos as a right back, thinking it might work, and it was a disaster. Now, yeah, I don't think awful. it was like only like that was his Ramos's fault. Like entirely, that whole team was a broken mess. But uh, I, I think that was the last time we saw it. At that, you know, that was it. Yeah. <clears throat> um. Anything else? Um. I, th- I really think we covered pretty much everything. Yeah. The only thing I was going to say, and we touched on it, was Higuain obviously broke out here. The only I was trying to find the match where, because I, I was picking between this match and the one where he scored had scored four goals in one game versus Malaga, and we won 4-3. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that was an all-time favorite for me. And I thought Higuain, before he 
get injured his back in Mourinho's first year. He had like a herniated disc that he had to get surgery on. Ever since that, I felt like he was never the same player and wasn't as good as he was prior to that. And those early, like this year and the year after, he was so, so good. And he actually uh, beat out Benzema for the starting spot when Pellegrini was coach. And um, it's a shame. He just never, never really recovered after that back surgery. And his finishing just got worse and worse. Right. Yeah. Um, Which ironically was interesting because in his first couple years at Real Madrid, his finishing was heavily criticized. And then he became one of the most prolific goal scorers in Europe eventually, especially at Napoli. So, um, that, and he's kind of the prototypical example people bring up when that, you know, we say Vinicius will never be a goal scorer. Um, Iguain was a goal scorer, but he had a lot of finishing problems um, early on. So, eventually he figured it out. And we're hoping the same happens to Vinicius. I think that's it. Yeah, I think we covered it all. So I will think about the next next game we'll cover in this segment, and uh, and uh, we'll see what uh, where that takes us. <laughs> all right, anything to plug, Matt, before we wrap it up? Uh, no, not at the moment. Okay, um, keep it locked on managingmanagement dot com, and uh, I guess at some point we'll be back with more podcasts and. Uh, and our next episode will be probably for patrons. So if you're not a patron yet, you got to get in patreon.com slash managing Madrid. And don't forget to get your tickets for a live show in New York. Um, we've tweeted out the link to the event page on managingmadrid.com. You can actually see it there. You can click on it. Um, it's also on our Patreon page. You can click on it. Get tickets. The venue to be announced, but it's going to be in Manhattan. And uh, we, we have narrowed down to a couple places, I think. So we'll keep you updated. But get your tickets July 28th um, at 7 p.m. on a Sunday night. So come out. All right, Matt. Thank you for doing this. And uh, until next time, Hala Mari. Hala Mari.